we're not doing mathematics here. Uh, we don't need an exact solution for these kind of problems we're solving every day. We need a, a cost-effective solution. Seven, eight years ago, it was already known. Getting a job in academia was hard. Living out of doing pure mathematics was hard. That it will most probably set you back into setting roots to some degree. You will have to be moving a lot if you took the path of taking a postdoc here and then a postdoc there in another couple of years. So yet I was not very excited about that. <laughs> you still need factories. You still need to bring knowledge and apply it to something and bring things to fruition and get results. Disclaimer. What you're about to hear represents the thoughts and opinions of the participants at the moment of recording. We reserve the right to change our minds. The most beautiful discovery that two things make is that they can grow separately without growing apart. A quote by Elizabeth Foley. The following is a conversation with Hector Tellez. He's a long-time friend of mine and is now a software engineer at Google. We talked about how he managed to transition from academia into industry, the reasons why he did so, and how is it like to live in California nowadays. This is Luis, welcome to the Welcome Podcast. So, okay, we start recording. Uh, Hector, thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. So, how have you been? Uh, I'm fine, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I think we're right. missing the Super Bowl today. <laughs> Are we? Uh, well, I have never been Like I, I, I usually attend Super Bowl parties because of the party. But like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it seems that that's that's the thing, right? It's just you just go to the Super Bowl party or to uh, some cultural party just because of the party, but not much because you understand what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, for me, it's like just looking at two numbers and like, ooh, that number got bigger. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think the red team is winning. <laughs> well, so my girlfriend was telling me that it's comparable to uh, the gala in, the, in China. They have this thing called the gala on Chinese New Year mm -hmm. and everybody just watches it. What is it about? It sounds like fashion kind of thing. Yeah, it sounds like fashionable, but no, it's just kind of... Uh, a bunch of artists just gathering together and singing and, you know, just having a show. Oh, uh, I see. Okay. So, so it's like an artistic event. I don't know. Like when I hear gala, I imagine fashion. Like, Yeah, me too. It's probably one of the words that we use in, in, in Mexico to describe some fashionable thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I was thinking uh, that it's been more than 15 years that we've met uh easily okay what was the that was 2006 right 2006, 2006. yeah so, yeah it's a well a little less maybe because oh yes that's right we, we met at the beginning of uh, school year and that's uh, around august uh, June, yeah. july august so it's it's been a while and i kind of miss those days uh but uh, <laughs> we all do i think yeah we all do yeah. we were young and learning things don't take me wrong but i i am enjoying my life a lot <laughs> <laughs> those were definitely good years uh, but i don't complain about the current ones <laughs> <laughs> no but definitely i think outside um this corona situation it seems to me that your life is going pretty well and i'm happy yeah yeah i would say that out of my friends probably one of the ones that looked at is enjoying his life the most 
uh, you just seem very happy with your current situation. And I mean, that's, that's <laughs> well, pretty good. Well, you mean out of the coronavirus situation or just No, 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 <laughs> just in general, I think. <laughs> uh, uh, it would yeah. be a little funny that someone is happy about the coronavirus situation. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll be surprised, but there is people who's thankful they don't need to go in, into an office. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I think probably I'm one of those. Uh, <laughs> I don't wish COVID on anybody. However, <laughs> yes. I'm very happy not going to the office. <laughs> yeah, me too. I, I have gained additional freedom. <laughs> To a certain degree, so I really do miss uh, talking to people, going to bars, having face-to-face -face discussions with both co-workers and friends. Yeah. But I think the freedom I have gained into like being less distracted with, well, you know, like common things going on in the office, like someone may interrupt you for a question without even trying to solve it on their own first. Uh, that's kind of annoying and that doesn't happen anymore, right? Like, yeah, they, they need to try it. They're forced to try it first and then, and then ask. Yeah, I th there's some interactions in the office that you sometimes you will think this is not productive or this is not necessary. <laughs> yeah, uh, that you will rather be doing something else, and that's definitely minimized in this day. So it earns you like a you know some free time to spend with your kids or your cats or dogs or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, cat in my case. You're always a cat person. No, I have been both a cat and a dog person. We were actually discussing we should get a a second cat or or a dog. I'm vouching for the dog because it's really hard to take a cat for a walk. <laughs> well, I've seen a few people doing it, but it must be really hard because there's only two or three that I've seen and they look weird. <laughs> yeah, it's also a lot more fun to do like cognitive experiments with dogs that are more cooperating than cats. Yeah, they definitely react almost like a human, like not quite, but at the same time, it's like... You're a very human-like creature. <laughs> You're a little bit weird. Well, they understand punishment differently. Like, it seems like cats do not understand punishment very well. Like, you, you can train them by giving them good things, but it's hard to train them by punishing for doing something. So it's hard to teach them not to do things. Uh, it's easy to teach uh, them to do things. Oh, that's interesting. So how do you teach them not to do things? Like, because with dogs, sometimes that there's some people that advocate for only positive reinforcement. So it is really hard to go on that route. Yeah, it's going the same thread that it has been going for kids, right? In the yeah. past, it was very common to have uh, physical punishments. And, <laughs> and nowadays it's more like, well, just punishments, but soft punishments, like you cannot play games or you are not going <laughs> to watch TV or something like that. Well, for cats, what they usually recommend is, it is well known that they do not like loud noises. Uh -huh. So if you're going to raise your voice, uh, like just reserve it for things that you really don't want them to do. Oh, um, I see. Yeah, it's still negative reinforcement, but it seems to work best if you reserve it for the things that you really you don't want them it. to do. Yeah. Uh -huh. Oh, it's interesting. There's also things like, for example, if your cat by accident jumps on the stove while it is still hot and they get burned, they're never going to do it again. Huh. Uh, so... There's also that kind of negative reinforcement learning. I don't understand very well the difference, but something like Between. if you understand that your cat like dislikes water, then maybe <laughs> setting up a trap and when it does something, it will get wet on its own. Uh -huh. Then that will deter that behavior. Uh, but if he associates the punishment with you, it's like oh, okay, then you're just like you're just being mean and. <laughs> 
that's uh, what he's gonna take from it. He's not gonna take like, oh, I did something and it results in something negative. Oh, I see, I see. So yeah. it is more like they associate the meanness to <laughs> to the person. They're probably very unsensitive to meanness, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something like that. Well, I'm not an expert, but I have tried to read some courses or books and these kind of things just just for fun. Like it's more fun having a cat if you can kind of interact with it in different ways other than just feed it and play with him. Yeah, otherwise I don't know, you're not developing a relationship, it's just like a living toy. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> it's like it will be as interesting as having a fish, right? Like you don't really interact with it, it's just <laughs> you just keep it, it alive and that's it. <laughs> like this living moving thing in my living room. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to come back into um, what we were talking the other day. You and I, we did our undergrad on the same the same university. We spent four years almost taking the same courses. Like, was uh, it only four years? I kind of think it was longer than that. Well, for me, it took me longer. <laughs> then you move into master's and I was still in my undergrad. Um, that is perhaps true. But it seems to me that the number of years we spent together taking courses was roughly the same, roughly four years. Probably, yeah. Well, you went pretty, yeah, you, you were going at really good speed. So yeah, it's probably four years. Okay, well, let's say it's four years. That's not the important part. <laughs> it's not important. And it seems to me that we took roughly the same courses. We had roughly the same uh, taste in mathematics. Yeah, the yeah we definitely that we have a lot of common interest. Yeah, a lot of uh, intersection. Intersection was quite significant. So barring a few courses, we did pretty much pretty much equally. But at some point, you know, you took a very different path, right? Like, yeah. I think I think uh, you had some opportunities opening in your life, and that led you, you know, in a very different direction. That's correct. So, uh, uh, I don't know. It's and many times I, I felt that I wanted to go in that direction as well, but I, I know at the moment it felt very difficult for me to sort of jump into, you know, I would like to do programming or I would like to do something else that is not just strictly academic. And it is perhaps until now that I feel that I was able to do that jump. That it just, it kind of took me 10 years <laughs> to really get out of academia. So given the fact that for you was, the transition was a lot smoother and a lot more like kind of seamless, like I would like to know from your point of view, what happened and how do you do it? Mm, sure. Well, something that may be important in the background is when I went to undergrad, I knew nothing about programming. Absolutely nothing. Like for me, that was a black box. Like I didn't really know how things in a computer worked. I didn't even know that they could be programmed by people. <laughs> like it, it, it was, <laughs> it was very ignorant uh, back then. So it was hard for me. So I, I spent. A lot of time trying to just not fail my computing courses and it paid off greatly like i did really well in those courses at the end that gave me a lot of confidence in computers and i found it really fascinating that programming is the closest thing we have to sorcery right yeah you learn a way to say things which is equivalent to spells and then things move which is like your program at runtime that was fascinating. So I took on that interest and uh, started taking more and more courses on programming because, well, after the first rough patch, it was sort of easy. Just keep building on top of it. 
that's when we started kind of diverging. Uh, like we will take mostly the same courses, but I will add like one computing course on top of my courses. And then, well, the jump was basically out of luck. So as I was closing into needing to think about what to do next, like, well, if I was going to do a master's degree or not, or where and on what, then I took longer than I should in trying to figure out what was going to happen next that I lost that year's train. And a teacher of ours, he noticed that, like he, he picked up on that and was like, hey, um, I know that it's late for you to not have a decision on where you're going to do your master's degree. So what are you going to do this year? And I told him, well, I don't really have a plan. Like, I will probably just stick around and learn more things in the meantime or find a teaching job somewhere while I have another chance to go and look for a master's degree. Well, I was accepted into UNAM, but it was not the thing that I wanted to do back then. So it's like, well, I'll give it another chance next year. And well, this teacher told me, well... Um, if you don't mind, I would like you to talk to a friend of mine who's looking for people like you. By that, he meant people with a mathematical background that was into programming. That was out of luck. I haven't I been in that hall that particular day trying to get people to read my thesis, my, my <laughs> dissertation thesis? Then that wouldn't have happened. That conversation wouldn't have taken place, and I wouldn't have been offered this uh, weird opportunities like well yes i know how computers work now and i guess i can adventure into that and uh, since i knew that wasn't my final plan like that was not what i wanted to do at that moment like like well i knew i didn't want to stay well i knew i wanted to do a master's degree at least i i wasn't ready to let go of mathematics uh, that easily so i took that job with a feeling of i'm here to learn if I mess up, then that's okay. So I took it as an opportunity to learn, and, and that's what I did. Good thing is that it worked for both parties. Like My employer was happy with my performance, and I was happy because I was learning. Uh -huh. They didn't pay a lot, but I mean, I, I was paid in a learning, right? In experience. Uh -huh. I mean, they were giving me money, but the experience that I took out of that was more valuable. After that... The jump was taken already. Like there, there was no more like a strong transition. It definitely worked a lot different. Like I took a lot of my strict thinking background with me into the industry, and that was kind of a rough patch to interact with others. Uh -huh. um, it's like, well, yeah, but uh, until my mentor, he's also a mathematician, but one day told me, "We're not doing mathematics here. We don't need an exact solution." Uh, for these kind of problems we're solving every day. We need a, a cost-effective solution. Uh -huh. Just don't lose time. You are doing engineering now. It's good to have good practices. It doesn't need to be perfect. And that was uh -huh. a valuable lesson. Yeah, that's something very different that you learn, but that I had to learn also now that I'm in in industry company, is that well, things work different. It's not probably the mathematical solution is not yeah. our priority at the moment. Like they appreciate it, then that's that's very admirable, but it's not priority. The solution itself, cost-effective solution is what takes priority. Yeah, it's more important for things to keep moving than for them to move optimally. Yeah. So you mentioned that this transition or this stronger part of the transition was as you were doing a master's in mathematics, right? No, well, after undergrad, for one full year, I only worked. Uh -huh. After that year, 
I enrolled in my master's degree and I kept working. I did two full-time things at the, uh-huh. at the same time. That was a rough time, I remember. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, later I transitioned into half-time work and full-time master's. Uh-huh. My employers were still happy with what I was delivering, so it was not that big of an issue. So when you were doing your master's, were you thinking uh, you will probably f- still continue doing mathematics or was at that moment a little bit fuzzy like were you like uh, in two minds trying to decide which path will you take eventually well i i picked an interest on both sets it was definitely more stimulating to do mathematics than the kind of work i was doing because i wasn't solving any new problems or any interesting enough problems at work like the things that programmers do day to day are not necessarily innovations. It's like, just apply that other thing that was being done here in this scenario. Or uh-huh. there is this algorithm that works well for this kind of problem. We need an implementation of that and is kind of solving the same problems over and over. So in that regard, I was sad that the future in academia looks so uncertain. Even at that point, and we're talking about probably, how long ago? Um, seven, eight years ago. It was already known. Getting a job in academia was hard. Yeah. Like, living out of doing pure mathematics was hard. Uh, that it will most probably set you back into setting roots to some degree. Like you will have to be moving a lot if you took the path of taking a postdoc here and then a postdoc there in another couple of years. So yet I was not very excited about that. <laughs> but All of my teachers during my master's degree kept encouraging me, well, not only me, like all of the students, to follow the academic route. Uh Some of them were even very open about like, hey, I I will give you a recommendation if you decide to do this. Like, there is this people here in California doing this kind of work if you're interested, or there is this other people in Australia doing this other kind of job if you decide to go that route. So it was definitely hard to decide. And I think if it wasn't because Google gave me an offer, I would probably have taken the academic path. I see. Yeah. yeah. At that point, when you received the, the offer from Google, then you decided that academia was probably was probably over. Uh, honestly, no. <laughs> uh-huh. I think it's still more rewarding to do mathematics uh, and I still kind of keep trying to maintain myself somewhat active by just learning new concepts in mathematics or well nowadays has been more statistics mm-hmm. even a, f- a couple of years after working at Google well first I took the offer at Google because it was Google it had to be interesting and it is it is a lot more interesting than my previous jobs the very different scale as well but even after Google, a couple of years later, I was kind of exploring, well, not actively exploring PhDs, but at least looking into areas where my mathematical background will give me a, an edge in academia. I was reaching out to my assessors from my master's degree. And it's like, hey, um, well, if it has been two years. Will it be too long for me to jump back on the train? Uh-huh. And well, they tried to offer a couple of things and nothing... Nothing really stuck. Like, nothing looked that much more interesting to me anymore. 
Uh-huh. So that's when I realized, um, well, it's probably over. <laughs> so at least full-time academia or full-time strict mathematics is not gonna, it's probably not going to come back. Oh, I see. You didn't find that interesting because you didn't find the topic appealing or you didn't find that the topic will uh, make your career progress? Uh, both. So um, maybe you can tell me I'm wrong, but it seemed to me back then that I will have been doing job for my assessor, right? Like uh, my assessor will be interested in something very particular. And regardless of my interest, I will have to be working on that for quite a few years. So yeah, the topics were not very appealing to me. I mean, they were definitely interesting. It was more like, yeah, I think this problem is interesting, but I don't think it's interesting uh-huh. enough to me to be full-time dedicated to it. Uh-huh. Had you found the right topic, would you have just left your job at Google and would have gone to do a PhD? I would have given it a try, yes. Um, yeah. At least at Google, there's the opportunity to leave the company and come back without an interview if it has been less than... Uh, I don't quite remember how long, but I think it's less than two years. It may be one year. Okay. So I would have done that, probably. Just giving it a try. Yeah, Let's just see. give it a try, like, just leave everything else because maintaining a full-time job and a PhD will have been pretty much impossible. Yeah. Like, I, I did that in my <laughs> for my master's degree. It was, it was hard. Yeah. It was not impossible, but it was really hard. And I don't think I I have the, that kind of energy anymore. No, it's definitely the PhD can completely drain your energy. Yeah. But that is interesting that at some point you had this, I don't know, little bug telling you you should, you should go back to academia. I do remember you saying that when you started your job at Google, you said, oh, I'll just start here. And then at some point, I would actually like to go into academia. And... I think we never followed up on that. I, I never asked you if you if you made a an attempt to do it. So it's, this is probably the first time I hear that. Yeah, well, it was not a very very strong attempt. I just didn't like the the way it was looking. We should instead of saying academia, we should just say mathematics, like doing a mathematical job. Okay. There's also research happening in private companies, right? Yeah. Um, uh, I, I think I lost what I was going to try to say next. Give me one second. No, it's gone. We <laughs> 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 can count this part out, right? <laughs> yeah, don't worry. <laughs> so what is uh, bringing you to try to study things on statistics? Well, my current role kind of requires some level of statistical analysis. Mm-hmm. Do you want to go there? Like, well, I can just give you like a very general explanation of what my job is. Yeah. Well, at Google, I build infrastructure for Android, Android uh-huh. the operating system for phones and tablets and TVs and now Autos too. None of the code that I write ends deployed in phones. Is more like infrastructure around developing Android itself. Uh-huh. We build all the mechanisms to test that Android is performing well in many fields like telephony, Wi-Fi, uh, Bluetooth, power, performance. That's kind of what I do. And some of those things are sort of non-deterministic. It's so complex that it's hard to assess in a theoretical manner. Like, for example, you run a profile on a, on a phone and it may drain 20 milliwatts of power. And uh-huh. you run it again and it may drain 
24 milliwatts of power. So there's some variance going on there. Yeah. So understanding that randomness goes into my job. Like we need to develop tools to say with confidence, like um, it may actually be performing bad or this uh-huh. is within the expected distribution. Uh-huh. So yeah, there is a good deal of that. So statistical thinking is kind of important. Not in depth, like I am far from being a person really knowledgeable on statistics, but the little I know, I I have been able to apply it very well and effectively into how we do things. So it's, it's more like you come to wanting to, to study statistics from the point of view of applying it to your job. Yeah. Do you consider it necessary or useful to go into a, a more deep understanding of it? It will at least be fun. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Which is probably the, the point yeah. of doing it. Yeah, so, well, I, I have actually tried to convince my managers that it is cost-effective to let me deep dive into different areas. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> But it's hard to convince people uh, that you are going to be doing stuff with a lot of risk of not getting anything in return. It is. It, really in, the, in the industry, it's a, it's a tough sell. Yeah. I'll tell them, I need to be taking courses, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I have been able to convince the company to pay for some things, but I need to use my own time to deep dive into that. Uh-huh. I don't complain about that. I mean, I love mathematics. I think mathematics are beautiful. And whenever I come back to it, it's refreshing. Yeah. So something that I have been doing in my current projects is a lot more focused on statistics. So um, it has been working for now. Like I, I haven't been able to convince them that the model I'm building may be worth entertaining. Like it surely carries a risk. Uh-huh. But they understand better that if it works, it's going to be rewarding. Yeah. It's just a lot of fun uh, being able to run experiments with your managers backing it up and being able to spend hours in a row on it. Yeah. Do you know also something else that is very fun now coming from a mathematician that's trying to gain to industry is being able to implement your results. Oh yeah, <laughs> that that is that is very underrated. I think that's a very underrated thing when you understand something and then you can program it and see it moving. Mm-hmm. There's something else in, in yeah, there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's awesome. <laughs> I, it, I it's amazing. There. Yeah, it's also something that doesn't last very long. It's like you see it moving and then you play with it like a few hours and then that's it, <laughs> right? It kind of <laughs> right vanishes. <laughs> But I think when I use that into doing research, it really helps you understanding actually the result or kind of it provides you another insight into what is going on, right? And yeah. Because sometimes you, you develop some intuition, like you're studying something, you develop some intuition. And when you only look at the equations or when you only look at the theory, your intuition kind of gets a little bit stuck because that's, that's the only thing you know. But when you see it moving, your intuition kind of slightly expands. And then you can tweak it a little bit and something happens to like, oh, damn it. So this must be true somehow. <laughs> you have to change it. And that's something I admire from engineers because they only play with the toy and they only yeah. manipulate the variables. But somehow they make it work. So they have that intuition and with the few engineers I've worked, they come up to the mathematicians and say, like, look, this works. 
now it's your problem to prove why it works. <laughs> That's your job. And okay. like, okay, I don't know how it starts, but it's it's actually uh, it's a really good interaction, and I appreciate that. Well, there's a joke uh, about that. It goes something like, if you change the parameters until you see it works, then that's called a hacky solution. But if you do it really, really, really fast, then that's called machine learning. <laughs> that's a good joke. I've never heard of that one. <laughs> so I think it will be probably useful in a, in a sense that people like you, uh, I mean, you come from a mathematical background, so people like you have the chance to develop both sides. And probably in, in most positions, but perhaps especially in your position, it probably might maybe really nice to understand the theory very well and the applications, the implementation of the theory into real life. Well, that, I think that's probably for my managers to decide. <laughs> now that you were mentioning, after I finished my master's degree in mathematics, I started one in computer science. That's right, that's right, yeah. I only stuck around there for one semester. After that, Google gave me an offer and was like, well, <laughs> what the hell am I doing here? And it was also kind of uh, disappointing that academia in computer science is also very theoretical and there's little interest in actually implementing things. Oh, uh-huh. Um, for one of my teachers, the course was very basic. And I took an interest in a teacher, well, his area of research, distributed computing. And I tried to grab his attention by implementing things. And it worked. But <laughs> then I realized that I picked his interest because he wanted me to implement things for his current projects. And I was not that happy with that. It's like, no, I... <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm not free labor. <laughs> <laughs> it was more like, well, I, I wanted to prove that I was able to bring things to fruition, but I wanted to use it on my own interest, right? <laughs> not for someone else's project. Yeah. I have a few friends that they went through similar things and either a PhD or postdoc, where you end up being a cheap labor for the supervisor and... I don't know, from the outside, it feels like, well, you shouldn't probably be there. Uh, but anyway, it's not for you to decide. You just kind of have to say what you think and if you're comfortable <laughs> yes. with it. But I think so. it is really fair to feel uncomfortable and try to get out of there. Uh, yeah. Well, to, to be fair, also, like in industry, you are also serving someone else's purposes, but you have a little more room to decide what to do. Like, you can argument, like, hey, I... I think this other idea I have will work better and then you get to work on that instead. Yeah. And also like the the, the monetary, you know, retribution, retribution, the reward that you get is is not comparable. It's uh, by no means comparable. It's by no means comparable because yeah. here you you're making a a full living and a half, <laughs> right? It's, you're earning like a, a top salary, right? Yeah. Whereas in as a grad student, sometimes you live on under minimum wage. Many grad students live under minimum wage, and they can get away with that because I mean they pay you a certain amount of money, but half of that money or more than half goes towards your tuition fees. So you never see it. You never see that money. Just it just kind of came and went, <laughs> just as 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 that easy. And you have to make the best with the with the rest and uh yeah it's, it's tough it's tough 
Well, yeah, I, it has been long since I have lived on student salary. I do not regret doing a job at the same time as my master's degree. Not a single bit. I haven't been able to get a lot of rewards from what I actually learned on the master's degree. Uh-huh. So I, I like to say that the master's degree was its own reward. It was very satisfying going back to do mathematics after one year of not doing any mathematics at all. So on your opinion, do you think it was hard to get off academia because it was out of your comfort zone? Did you feel like kind of comfortable in academia? And that's why you didn't do the jump before? Probably. Um, so there is this movie, called, what is it called? Um, it's about these people in jail. Uh, anyway, there's this movie about some people in jail. And one of the argument, like one of the, some of the stories is that when people go out of jail, well, some of them end up committing suicide or just going straight back into jail. And they say it's because they are institutionalized. And I think that's what happens to many grad students is that we become institutionalized. We don't really know how to live outside. Like uh, every day what you do is, oh, the average grad student, wake up at 8, let's say, go and take a bus into your uh, office and just probably stare at the monitor, look at some papers, have a meeting with your supervisor, then browse on Reddit or YouTube or whatever to kill some time because doing math is really painful. <laughs> so you can't be doing that for like extended periods of time. Then some people come to your office, you talk or you go for coffee or you, you come back, then more meetings, this, you go to a course, you have office hours, go back home. And then your day just becomes like that, right? There's no, there's very little structure that is imposed by your environment. Yeah. You have to impose this structure. You have to construct this structure. And you get used to that. You get used to that life. How do you get out of there? How do you apply for a job? If that's, that's the only thing you know how to do, right? It's very few people, very few grad students, I would say, take the time to say, okay, I'm going to learn coding on the side, or I'm going to learn how to do machine learning, data analysis, or something that makes me more employable outside academia. Some of them do, but I think few of us really have the courage to do it, right? And then you end up just like being there. Uh, probably sometimes you see some other people like, oh, you got an internship. And it's like, oh, how, how on earth do you do that? Like, how do you get an internship? Oh, it's, really? Uh, wow. That's, a, that's news to me. <laughs> it, it, is, it, is, it is complicated. It's not... It's not straightforward. And I think in many times it depends on your supervisor, like some certain supervisors understand the problem and they may encourage you to, you know, go and do something else. Yeah. But some other supervisors, they just expect you to be there and do your research and do your office hours and your TAs on time, take your courses and that's it. But you don't know, you don't learn how to live outside academia. And the harsh truth is that, I don't know, 60% of us at least will have to find a job outside academia. Because there's just not many. There's not enough Not enough jobs. Right, yeah. As I was telling you, that was kind of what I didn't like about yeah. the future. <laughs> and, and I think you're damn right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it has been known for a while. Like, it's not something I discovered. It was more like my friends were like, oh, well, yeah, um, now I need to move. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my next postdoc is somewhere else. Yeah, and in, in a year or two, they will be saying, "Well, now I need to move again." <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
and you see your uh, I don't know the the prof that is ten years older than you, and then he says like, "Oh, I didn't have a very rough time finding a job." But then you see your friends that are only five years older than you, and they're starting to have a rough time. So you it's like, okay, if the trend continues, for me it's going to be impossible. <laughs> this is just not going to happen. And uh, there's probably some truth in that. It, it just becomes harder and harder. It becomes something that is more um, exclusive to grads from the elite schools or very, very top-level students from the rest of schools, right? Yeah. If you're not either of those two, then you're going to have a rough time, let's say. Probably not forget about it, but you will definitely have a rough time finding a job. Well, hmm. do, you think, <laughs> do you think academia should be expanding like in, in capacity? No, I, I actually think it's good that it, it's just dedicated for, for the top people. Like it's, that's, it's the top people who who are able to do the top things, right? And not everybody's top. So if you're not top, but you're still pretty good, you can still apply your uh, knowledge somewhere else. Yeah, I think you can still be productive. Yeah, exactly. Society. I think probably just grad programs should train or prepare students to live outside academia. I think that's something that is missing in many in, in many grad programs. Um, and that's sad because that's what a school is supposed to be for yeah yeah exactly <laughs> but i think it's the last it's the last thing that they try to teach you yeah anyway like academia for academia itself doesn't sound like a very good idea <laughs> you still need factories you still need to bring knowledge and apply it to something and bring things to fruition and get results yeah, yeah definitely and i and i think uh, people who do a master's or a phd Uh, are useful outside academia. I think that I think it's not wasted. You spend some time developing some kind of particular knowledge, right? Yeah. Which ends up being applying in industry sooner or later. So, if you can expand or you can, you know, redistribute that knowledge to your fellow industry peers, then uh, that's that's good for society and that's good for the progress of of your field or, or whatever uh, of the world. Let's say. <laughs> Right. So, changing a little bit of topics because I uh, don't have a lot more time. Uh, you've been uh, living in in California for for some time. Yeah, uh, it's been um, four and a half years. Uh, sorry, five and a half years now. Uh huh. Yeah. So I think you know um, about life and in the Bay Area a lot more than someone that. I, goes on Reddit or YouTube and sees people like Joe Rogan saying, I'm, I'm escaping California. Yeah, <laughs> well, I can tell you it's all true. <laughs> <laughs> everything they say is true, the end. <laughs> uh, well, everything I have I have found, yeah, is, is very true. It's wild coming in here and looking for a two-bedroom apartment and then seeing that it's like at least $2,500 a month. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's very true. Like, it's like your second tax. <laughs> yeah, and the taxes over there, they look quite insane, eh? Yeah, it has been a very interesting development now that the whole pandemic is full in place and people is being given the opportunity to move somewhere else. A lot of people is doing that. Yeah. I have quite a few friends that have moved far from Bay Area, still within California. Like, uh -huh. 
it will probably take you like four or five hours to go there. Um, they seem happy about it. They do not regret their decision to go and rent a full house with backyard, multiple rooms for just a fraction, or just like two thousand dollars for the whole thing instead of a full apartment or even even less than that. Yeah, that's crazy. It is crazy. Yeah. So uh, four or five hours that will they consider commuting at some point? When definitely not. So well, the friends that I have known to do this. Uh-huh. They work for companies like Twitter or Facebook that have given some assurance that they can do that for longer. Uh-huh. Google has not done so, uh, at least not yet. But still, I have colleagues at Google that at least for these one year, they have decided to go somewhere cheap and still they feel happy about it. <laughs> like yeah, even, even considering they may have to come back at some point, they, that doesn't seem to have a lot of weight to them. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, yeah. We ourselves, we moved because we wanted more space. Uh, still in the Bay Area, but we are happy about the decision as well. Yeah, I think that was the explanation that many realtors uh, were giving. Because here in Toronto, many people moved out of the downtown condos mm-hmm. into the the suburbs. So the price of the houses in the suburbs just like skyrocketed. <laughs> they were thinking, you know, the pandemic will bring the, the house prices down. But it just went up and yeah. in the suburbs. The same thing has happened over here. Rent has gone down, but home prices have gone up. Like crazy. Well, yeah. in here, it has been, well, it has always been crazy. It hasn't been crazier. Okay. It has just been uh, increasing at the same rate as it was before. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, there's uh, public numbers about that. It's the uh, Schiller metric. Uh, Schiller. Yeah, the case Schiller index you can find one for the san francisco area and it's pretty much like just still going uh, <laughs> at the same crazy rate as it was before that's insane what do you know what is the rate i don't know uh i, I can only see the national number uh-huh. and the one that i found just by looking right now and, uh, okay let's see okay i can see the number i don't know what the number means but it's 232 <laughs> 132 Whatever that means. 132 uh, units of inflation in uh, housing. <laughs> so let's see. I think this is, they tend to say, yeah, uh, 2000 is 100. And 20 years later, that has more than doubled. So yeah, I guess this index is saying what used to cost 100 in 2000 now is more than double. So if you have gotten an average house back then, you will be able to sell it for double today yeah i think roughly every 10 to 20 years uh, house prices double in many growing areas yeah but this is this is inflation fixed so this is even taking inflation into account so that's crazy still uh, even taking inflation into account yeah wow. so yeah like they remove that's crazy the inflation from it for this index in particular so this measures kind of the affordability of... Um, yeah, if I understand it correctly, yes. That's I, insane. Yeah, well, I watched a lecture by Schiller himself, and I think he explained like that. And this index is taking into account inflation. Although inflation on its own is very complex, right? Like, it's, it's a weighted average, really hard to understand as well. Yeah, it's because it's not that everything just like raises up at the same time. 
at the same rate. Yeah, at the same rate. Yeah, some things it's become more, goes, more expensive than others. Goes goes a little uneven. <laughs> yeah, Hector. Uh, I think I have to go. It's a little late on this side yeah. of the world. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I I know you you break after 10 p.m. <laughs> yeah, and I'm I'm about to become a pumpkin. <laughs> and disappear definitely. Okay, I guess we can switch to Spanish for the last couple of things. Can we do that offline then? Thank you. Yeah. <laughs>